can open to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll be looking together at verses 5 through, a, through 11. And I'll begin reading in verse 1. For those of you at home, I may be looking off to the left throughout the sermon as we have our team over here to the left. So forgive me for that. I'll try to maintain eye contact with the beloved in person and the beloved at home. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1. But I determined this for my own sake, that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I caused you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order, not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end and also, to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And this ends the reading of God's word this morning. Let's pray once again before we look at the text. Lord, we now ask for your grace of understanding and application of this wonderful text and help me by the power of your spirit to, com to communicate it and your people to have ears to hear it for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, we're continuing our study through 2 Corinthians, uh, picking up from and overlapping a bit uh, with the part of the text we covered last week that is verses one through four. And uh, while Paul uses uh, poetic language and imagery um, in this epistle, um, we'll see some of that next week. Um, even so, th this, this epistle is very applicable, um, instructive, and encouraging for God's people, uh, mainly because um, it is rooted in real life, on the ground, practical issues reminding us that the Bible as a whole, that is redemptive history, um, is overwhelmingly um, a theology that comes to us um, not from some ivory tower, but um, from the trenches <laughs> via, of course, divine inspiration. And the fact that God is present um, in the real life, everyday messes um, that we deal with. And this morning, uh, we will read about one such mess and how um, everyday situations, uh, although they present a conflict, it's much greater than an on-the-ground conflict, and we see that it connects um, to a cosmic conflict. And here, we take up Paul's comments about um, church discipline um, and forgiveness. Forgiveness in verses 5 through 11. 
Um, forgiveness, of course, is central to the gospel. Uh, knowing through th that through the gift of faith, um, all the wrongs that I have done have been forgiven by God through the finished work um, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who paid for the sins of many on the cross, bearing God's wrath against us and our sins, and that according to his grace, we are now declared free from all blame. There is most certainly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Settled. No sin. Past, present, or future, no word, no thought, nor deed of mine can stand against me on the day of judgment because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, for in my place condemned he stood. Now, as a result, a person is never more like God than when he or she forgives someone. And yet, struggling as we do with pride, um, an exaggerated sense of self-importance, we tend to be easily offended. And we find it difficult to forgive one who has wronged us. And often we counterattack and just, you know, pour gasoline on the fire, so to speak. Now, many in our day, spending far much too, ta too much time on social media, um, they live in a cycle of attack and counterattack. Offended by someone's words, they go on to counter in order to get even. You know, when I was growing up, there were bullies on the playground, bullies in the neighborhood, and today uh, we have uh, what we call cyber bullies. Cyber bullies. And many young people um, seeking affirmation for themselves by way of Instagram or Facebook, for instance, um, often receive um, feedback that is um, less than they were hoping for. And as a result, many um, spiral um, into despair. And studies have shown that there's a direct link between social media and depression for young people today, the, at least those who spend a lot of time there on social media. Now, sometimes that, that spirit of attack and counterattack, bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, is brought into the church. It's an ugly thing. I mean, as much as we adore and embrace God's forgiveness of us, uh, we don't always freely forgive those who sinned against us. We welcome receiving forgiveness, but often spurn when it comes to giving forgiveness. We run quickly to the throne of grace, amen? I know I do. We run quickly to the throne of grace to acknowledge and receive God's forgiveness and cleansing of the most heinous of sins. Just, just the ones that go on up here in your head. And yet we raise the bar for others who've sinned against us. The only reason for our existence in the kingdom of God is due to God's forgiveness. That's it. So how can we then refuse to forgive someone who's wronged us when they ask for forgiveness? I mean, what should we do when we find it hard or even impossible um, to forgive someone? What are we to do when someone has smeared our name, betrayed us, hurt us, and then asks for forgiveness? Well, Paul helps us with these matters uh, by applying the doctrine um, of forgiveness to a specific situation with the congregation at Corinth. We learned throughout 2 Corinthians that Paul had been uh, badly mistreated 
during his return visit to Corinth, instigated by men whom Paul identifies as false apostles, who not only peddled false doctrine, but riled up the Corinthians against the true apostle, our beloved brother Paul. Now, these men were eloquent speakers, and Paul um, admittedly was not. You remember in 1 Corinthians, when Paul was addressing the matter of factions within that church, he said this, Christ did not send me to preach the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. When I came to you, I preached Christ to him crucified. Reminding them that the gospel does not create faith um, through flowery words, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Corinthians were easily impressed by those who had strong rhetorical skills. But as always, a tendency to favor style over substance made them fair game for eloquent heretics. Same is true to this day. They entered in and they appointed themselves as apostles. All the while criticizing Paul's preaching skills, you know, that he was less than, uh, well, we know he even said it, um, less than a charismatic um, individual was the apostle Paul. And ironically, the true apostle um, is placed on the defense and, and he's forced to define and defend the true nature of apostolic ministry. Okay, so that's kind of an intro to where we're at. And here in verses 5 through 11, Paul addresses um, a discipline case within the church there with no mention of the incident or of the individual. Now, remember, there was a man in that congregation who had sinned grossly back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, it's possible that the person in question is the one who was guilty of incest. Remember back in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, we read, um, it was immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. When he was finally confronted, if it's the man, he openly reviled Paul. Okay, now, most scholars believe, however, that the person referred to here is one who publicly resisted Paul's apostolic authority in some way. You know, he, he drank the Kool-Aid, perhaps, of the uh, opponents of Paul, and he sided with them, speaking lies and slanders against slanderous words against the apostle, um, whoever it was is not crucial because the, the principles for our edification remain the same regardless of who the individual is, okay? So here Paul had confronted this man. He also confronted the congregation during his painful visit, chapter 2, verse 1. His painful visit. And he commanded them to carry out discipline on this individual, and then having departed from there, remember he left Ephesus, makes a quick visit to Corinth, he departs from there, he goes into Macedonia, and then he canceled his promised return visit back. Look at chapter 1, verse 23. To spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Chapter 1, verse 24. Not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy. So instead of revisiting, he wrote them a letter known as the sorrowful letter or the stern letter. We know that from chapter 2 and verse 4, and we'll see a little later on this morning from chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. And he urged them to repent and discipline the individual. If, okay, if he remained unrepentant. Now, eventually, Titus 
informed Paul that the majority of the congregation had indeed repented and grieved with Paul. They were sorrowful because of the harm that this individual had caused within the church. The leaders apparently brought the man under church discipline, and since he was unrepentant, they disfellowshipped him. And fortunately, and again I say fortunately, by God's grace, the excommunication accomplished exactly what it intended to do. It produced sorrowful repentance in the heart of the man over his sin. So Paul joyfully writes what we call 2 Corinthians. As we pointed out last time, um, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is really his third or fourth letter to that congregation. So while there was repentance and sorrow um, over this man's sin, there were some, perhaps of the uh, pro-Paul party, remember in 1 Corinthians, some in that congregation said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. And the super pious people said, you know, I'm of Christ. They were divided. So perhaps these are those who sided up with Paul and they wanted another pound um, of flesh from this repentant brother. Unwilling to, to receive him back, unwilling to forgive the brother who sinned against Paul and in turn sinned against the entire congregation. Paul has said many times, um, if one part of the body aches, the entire body aches. It affects the whole. So unwilling to, to forgive and receive him back, um, they wanted to punish him rather than restore him. So Paul writes in this letter, look, this guy has repented, so I'm instructing you to forgive, restore, and reaffirm him publicly. What's the goal of church, of church discipline? Repentance and restoration of the offender. To, to make whatever amends are necessary so that the individual is restored to the full favor and standing of the whole body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the aim of church discipline is not revenge. It's not public humiliation, but repentance and restoration. Over the course of 14 years, um, we've named someone from the pulpit before the congregation who was unrepentant five times with the goal of restoring them, and we're three out of five. We restored three publicly. One is a self-professed apostate. He denies faith in Jesus Christ, and the other is still wandering about. He's moved out of town, and we hope one day will be restored as well. Now, the classic text on church discipline is Matthew 18. If you want to turn there, we'll take a look at it. So we all have all this in mind as we work our way through. In Matthew 18, we read in verse 15 the, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the what? To the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, treat him as an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, heaven agrees with your discipline. Okay, if, if you determine as the body of Christ that this person is bound in unrepentant sin, heaven agrees with you. If they repent and, and you determine that they be loosed from this, heaven agrees with you. I mean, Jesus said the very same thing to his apostles after his resurrection. In John 20 and verse 23, he said this, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. 
Again, I say to you, verse 19, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And again, that has nothing to do with a, a, a prayer meeting, but everything to do in context with church discipline. Together, agreeing, Christ is right there, agreeing with you in your midst. He's the head of his body, the church of Jesus Christ. So there's forgiveness and restoration. That's the goal based on repentance. And by the way, any church that does not practice church discipline is in blatant violation of the scriptures, period. You know, they'll claim, well, we just love people. No, they don't love people. They actually do not. They actually have very little love for fellow believers if they let them go off in heinous, blatant, unrepentant sin that affects the whole body. And they have very little concern for the purity of Christ's body, the church, if they don't practice biblical church discipline. Now, when the Bible speaks of removing someone from fellowship, it is not because a person is a sinner. Amen? I mean, if that were the case, you wouldn't have a pastor and the pulpit would be vacant every week. <laughs> no, it is because the person refuses to repent of their egregious sin and therefore is ordered to be put out. I mean, as Christians, do we not live in faith and repentance every day? Every day. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we're shown that godly sorrow is good. Godly sorrow is good. Godly sorrow is spiritually healthy, whereas excessive sorrow is deadly. Godly sorrow, healthy. Excessive sorrow, deadly. Verse 5. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, Paul says his suffering is enough. He is repentant. Guys, he has repented. Notice Paul does not take this personally. He was the one being attacked directly. So he, he guards him, notice, in order not to say too much. What he means is, you know, rather than exaggerate this thing, okay? Although Paul is the primary target, verse 10, he has also brought grief and pain to the entire church. Okay, nevertheless, Paul says, look, I seek no vengeance here. Neither should you. Church, Corinth. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. Verse 7, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Why? Because this man came to the place of godly sorrow, leading to repentance by way of the Holy Spirit who indwelt him. That's the purpose of church discipline. Godly sorrow means to be brokenhearted over one sin. Just as David was after his sin of adultery, taking Bathsheba, followed by the sins of deceit, conspiracy, and murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Brokenhearted. See, pride and arrogance had arisen up and out of King David. And he went on to violate his conscience over and over again. He became hardened for a season and went upward of a year, if not longer, without repenting of that sin. And eventually, God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David by way of parable. David. 
There were two men lived in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had many herds, many flocks. The poor man had but one little ewe lamb. He nurtured that little ewe lamb. He raised that little ewe lamb up along with his children. It drank, it, it drank from his cup. They loved that little lamb. In a wayfair, he travels into town and he comes to the rich man. And the rich man, wanting to host him, make a feast for him, rather than taking from his own flocks, his own herds, he goes and takes this little ewe lamb, sacrifices it, and cooks dinner for the man. David's response, this man must die after he repays fourfold the loss. Nathan says, David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord. David says, I've sinned against God. Godly sorrow, brokenhearted over his sin. So David indwelt with the Holy Spirit, capable of adultery, deceit, and murder, was brought to repentance, expressing godly sorrow of which we read from this morning in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's response to that egregious um, season of unrepentant sin, saying, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He goes on to say, create in me a clean heart, a clean heart, O God, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the, notice, he didn't say restore to me my salvation. David's one of God's elect. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit, says David. Now, this is exactly what Paul drives at in this letter. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, that's the tearful, stern letter, sorrowful letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world, worldly sorrow, mere worldly sorrow, produces death and never repentance. Worldly sorrow, Judas, who wept because he betrayed innocent blood, went out and hanged himself. Worldly sorrow produces death. Godly sorrow produces repentance. Peter, who denied Christ three times, wept bitterly unto repentance. Godly sorrow. Now, let me say this. Feeling bad about our sin, good thing or bad thing? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It's healthy. Uh, you know, we don't come to church to feel better about ourselves. Hopefully you don't expect me to make you feel better about yourselves. Amen? I promise I won't. I don't do it for myself. You don't come to church to feel better about yourself. You come to church rather to feel better about and, and know better the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work at Calvary. To be led back to him. Week after week after week. Godly sorrow over our sins leads us back to the cross of Christ, who is the Lord of our justification. 
leads us back to the living, resurrected, and ascended Christ, the Lord of our sanctification. Not to feel better about me, but him produces godly sorrow. So Paul, the one who was receiving all these attacks, all the slander, is now the one who exhorts the congregation in Corinth not to be too harsh with the man. So that, notice, he's not overwhelmed by sorrow and as a result, despairingly, you know, leave the faith. The brethren. Verse 7b, otherwise... Such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Okay? This person has been disciplined. So he's either repented or um, is ready to do so. So Paul does not want him to be pushed away from the church and cut off from God's means of grace. And so we read in verse 8, Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for the brother. Reaffirm means to, to ratify. It, su- it suggests uh, a, a, a formal congregational activity, i.e. public restoration. Verse 9. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. So he tests the Corinthians on this matter. Do they really acknowledge Paul's apostolic authority? That's the test. He's the true apostle because if Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, then he speaks with the authority of Christ. He puts him to the test. And remember, this is the very point that the church was challenging the apostolic authority of Jesus Christ. So the question is, will they obey and restore the brother? Now, in verses 10 and 11, Paul brings it back to the gospel. Godly sorrow, forgiveness, and restoration are all rooted in the gospel. Verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes, don't miss this now, in the presence of Christ. Okay? Now, Paul is certainly willing to forgive the brother, the repentant brother. He says, reaffirm this brother and do so, verse 10, in the presence of Christ, who is the head of his church. This is not your church. This is not my church. This is Christ's church. This is his church. So in the presence of Christ, restore him. Consider Christ. Okay, that is, let, let us remember his teachings on forgiveness. Woven throughout scripture. Consider the Lord's Prayer. Look at it, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12. And forgive us our debts. Okay, now listen to this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Question. Do you really want God to forgive you the way you have forgiven those who have sinned against you? I don't. So Jesus is, is, is right here in the prayer. This is a, a prayer example known as the Lord's Prayer. He's forcing us to confront a need in our own lives, to, to calculate all that God has forgiven us in Christ. Consider it, that we might be empowered and motivated to forgive what others have done against us. 
forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, determined as he is, our Lord, in this teaching, to make sure we don't miss the point, he says this in verse 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Well, what does that mean? Well, he's talking about communion, not union. All right, it's very important. It's not that he will revoke justification from those who have received a full pardon in forgiveness of sins. As though, you know, God's forgiveness is somehow predicated upon um, our ability um, to forgive others. We'll see more of this in just a few minutes. This is not a kind of justification by a way of our forgiving others. This rather is the fact that the forgiven forgive. You can't lose your union with God through Christ if you're unforgiving, but you can mess up your communion with him by being unforgiving. In other words, it's because we have been forgiven. Jesus has died for all our sins. We are clothed in his righteous robes through faith alone in Christ alone, and therefore must always be willing to forgive others who seek forgiveness from us. So if we truly understand our salvation, a, a gift which we, we did not nor cannot in any way deserve, can't earn this, how then can we not be willing to forgive others who seek our forgiveness? That's the lesson in all this. That's what Jesus was teaching. Micah, the prophet, he reminds us how God treats the repentant. We opened with it this morning in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Look there. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in unchanging love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Of the repentant, he sends their sins to oblivion. As far as the east is from the west, get on an airplane and head west, or head east, head west, around the globe, heading east, you're always heading east, heading west, you're always heading west, east and west never meet, but you head north, once you get to the North Pole, you're heading south. East and west never meet, showing us how completely God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. Done. So the forgiven, forgive. Hebrews 8, verse 11. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. Now hear this. And I will remember their sins no more. So how contrary then to the gospel would it be to remember what God has chosen not to remember? Now, that doesn't mean that you, you, you just simply forget some cruel act that was laid upon you sometime in your life. His point here is that we don't hold it against the individual. God is sovereign. He, he can't forget, but chooses not to hold those sins against us. That's what that means by what it says. We've been forgiven of the most heinous sins against a God who's holy, holy, holy. How can we not forgive lesser sins against us? 
is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And that, of course, is the theme of Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant that we also find in Matthew 18. Turn there, Matthew 18. So Jesus, after teaching about church discipline, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Thought he was being very generous. It's a number of perfection. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven, but up to 70 times seven. Verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. That's about 20 years wages. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay, repay you everything. Okay, that's a pledge that's impossible to keep. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe which was nothing but a petty debt. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling. And he went out and threw himself, and he went through him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have made mercy, had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. Okay, now note, not executioners, but torturers, jailers until he should repay all that was owed him. Notice, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, let me make it clear that that is an illustration of divine chastening, not divine condemnation. In other words... There is a high price to pay for unforgiveness as a believer. An unforgiving person is one who becomes incredibly bitter. A very angry person who seeks revenge, they're easily offended, they're always looking for a fight. Quite simply, they're a miserable individual. And there are Christians like that, they're just miserable. They always want everyone to forgive them but they hold on to unforgiveness over someone, somewhere. So, they go through life, it's kind of like picking a scab that never heals. The unforgiving sinner who's been forgiven much. So for a believer to remain like that is to be given over to extreme discipline. So in verses 34 and 35, they're given over to uh, the torturers of life, if you will. Not executioners. This isn't condemnation. This is heavy chastening, is what our Lord refers to here. Your health may go because of bitterness and unforgiveness. Resentment. Your relationships are destroyed. Your testimony is shot. You constantly quench and grieve the spirit, constantly always walking in the flesh. And you march into church with a furrowed brow, just waiting for someone to offend you. miserable. Now, the Apostle Paul also knows that Satan thrives on unforgiveness in the church. He just waits to exploit it. Verse 10b, if I have forgiven anything, notice, look at the text, 
I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, verse 11, so that, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his, what? Schemes, tricks, deceit. Satan has schemes, he has goals, he has designs for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one of them, let me back up a bit, one of those schemes is for the church to entirely refuse to exercise church discipline. And whenever a church falls prey to that scheme of ignoring or tolerating unrepentant sin within the church, it ceases to reflect Jesus Christ, her Lord and head, who demands that we carry it out. So they ignore the word. That means they ignore Christ, who is the word. That's one scheme. And they're easily led into false doctrine, by the way. Any church that does not practice church discipline, I will go there and eventually I will show you that they give way to some heresy. In Revelation 2, right? Chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus says of the church of Pergamum and Thyatira, who were tolerating unrepentant sin and false teaching, he threatens to come to them and unchurch them. To the church of Pergamum, he says, I will come and war against them, those, those who profess me as Lord. I will war against them with the word of my mouth. To the church of Thyatira, he said, I will throw her into a sickbed and into great tribulation. Is he serious about it? He said, unless they repent. That's one scheme for the church not to exercise biblical, loving church discipline. Now, if he cannot prevent a church from carrying out um, biblical church discipline, Satan will scheme to get a church to carry it out harshly and without grace. A plot to destroy the unity of the church. Where they fall into patterns of unforgiveness, harshness, being unloving, and when they do that, they also cease to reflect Jesus Christ, her Lord and head. So they both error. Satan gains a foothold from which to cause further damage and harm to the cross of Christ, the heart of the gospel. That produces right? Harsh reaction, unloving attitude, rather than praying and hoping for repentance, only produces worldly sorrow, that is sorrow without true relief, which brings about not the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but the condemnation of the devil. Remember chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, worldly sorrow, godly sorrow? Godly sorrow produces repentance, but any time you have law without gospel, it produces nothing but sorrow. Law without gospel, rules without gospel. Because when you have a bunch of rules without gospel or law without gospel, you are tempted now to, to look to yourself. We are tempted then to look to ourselves rather than Christ and that's nothing but hopelessness. To trust in ourselves. So the temptation to trust in yourself is that you will either begin to delight in yourself or despair of yourself. 
will become either self-righteous Pharisees, you know, looking down on, you know, those bad people. I don't do that. We look down. We show no compassion or mercy or forgiveness. And we begin, you know, worldly sorrow, you begin to despair of Christianity and you say, man, I can't do this. Newsflash. Moral reform doesn't save. Moral reform can't save. It's only the finished work of Jesus Christ by way of the cross that saves. Only the gospel can set us free, forgiven as we are. Therefore, we must forgive when people seek our forgiveness because of the gospel. Because that produces godly sorrow. Repentance, salvation. So that's conviction. Conviction is good. Condemnation, bad. That's excessive sorrow. It leads to the condemnation of the devil. Godly sorrow by way of God's means of grace, that is his word preach, the whole counsel of God, uh, the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, fellowship with one another, church discipline. Where does church discipline begin? The resident presence of the Holy Spirit right here. It's you and the Holy Spirit. You violate your conscience with regard to the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing conviction upon our lives, and that sin becomes made manifest. Well, then a brother or sister is going to notice, and they're going to come to you one-on-one -on -one in love. If it's a heavy sin that, that, not that, you know, I offended you because uh, my politics don't line up with your politics. I'm talking about true sin, real sin that affects the entire body. Then you come to the person one-on-one. -on -one. If they don't listen, you take two or three. If they don't listen, then you take it to the church. If they don't listen, then you put them out with the hope of receiving them back godly sorrow that produces repentance leading to salvation, 2 Corinthians 7. So, it is on the basis of the gospel, beloved, that we can and must forgive our offenders is the lesson here in 2 Corinthians who seek forgiveness. So that disputes don't fester within the body of Christ. Creates disunity and in disregard for the gospel that is supposed to unite. Amen? Amen. Close with this. Colossians 3, verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Amen? So may we be known here at Pacific Hope Church as a body of forgiving people because the greatest thing one sinner can do for another is to forgive. It's to forgive. The forgiven forgive. Amen. May God bless his word to all of our hearts this morning. Lord, we do thank you for the gospel. We do thank you for your forgiveness. Help us when one has wronged us and they seek our forgiveness to be forgiving for we have been forgiven so much. All for the glory of your name, the head of your church, Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, we pray. Amen.